Last week we started this little series called Next, and uh, we, we talked about asking ourselves the question, what is next? But we ended the sermon last week by saying, let's not ask just ourselves what's next. Let's come before God, and let's ask Him, God, what do you have next for me? What is it that you want me to do? What is it that I'm not seeing? What is it that you are seeing that I don't see? And so, God, what's next for me? And I've been listening to some of you, and I think you've been, you've been, uh, God has spoken to some of you and challenging you in maybe some areas that you're like, oh, man, not that. Because one of the dangers, obviously, of asking God to show us what is next is that he may show us some things that we don't necessarily want to do or like. And so we want to continue on from there because Jesus took time to prep his disciples. And so I think it's important for us as 2013 is just upon us to kind of prep ourselves and say, okay, so what could it be that God wants to do in my life this year? What is it possible that God wants to do in the life of this church this year? And how is he maybe prepping us for what's next? Maybe there's something in our lives that, that we've become very familiar with and we're very comfortable in, and God is saying, I want to take you beyond that. I want to show you what else there is. Jesus prepped his disciples because Jesus knew that unless he did this for his disciples, they would get stuck in what they were in, and Jesus knew that what they had now when he was still with them wasn't as much as they could have when he would leave them. And so even for the disciples, even though for the disciples it was a very difficult time and it was a huge adjustment for them to say, I'm going to allow you, God, I'm going to allow you, Jesus, to leave. They couldn't understand it and they argued with him and they didn't believe that that would happen. Jesus knew all along that unless he did this, what was next for them could not be accomplished. Last week we spent our time around this statement. We said unless we strive for the next, we will get stuck in the now and will become the then. Unless we strive for the next, we will get stuck in the now and will become the then. Jesus knew with his disciples that unless his disciples were challenged to think beyond what they could think of, it, is very light, it was very possible that they would get so comfortable with the way life was that they would never take the message to the world like he had planned for them to do. And so... You know, we said last week that one of the things, the biggest hindrance for us being challenged to going to what's next is we love to be where we are comfortable. We love being where we're familiar. And I know it's true for all of you as much as it is for me, but there are certain parts of the world I will not go vacationing in simply because that's not where I would be comfortable. There are certain hotels and certain restaurants and certain things that we might not go into because, well, that's not what I'm comfortable with. That's not what I'm familiar with, so I'm not going to do that. Maybe this is why some people are stuck in a job that they don't like. Because they can't see themselves doing anything else. This is all they've ever done. This is what they're familiar with. This is what they're comfortable with. This is also why sometimes we're afraid to volunteer for things. We're afraid to try new things out because... Well, what if I'm not good at that? What if I've, I'm, I'm going to fail? I've never done this before. I'm not, I'm not comfortable there. I have no experience here. And so we just say, no, I'm going to just stay where I'm comfortable. And I'm going to stay where I'm familiar. Now, this is true for you as far as your careers. Some of you have been tempted to take a promotion job 
and do something different. Some of you have maybe even thought of quitting your job and starting your own business. Some of you have maybe thought of going to school, but you're like, man, I don't know. So this isn't just a spiritual thing. This is part of our daily lives. Some of you have maybe wanted to go and meet your neighbor, but man, I don't know them, and so you're not comfortable with meeting new people, and so you haven't, and you've wanted to. So this issue is not whether you have a desire to. The issue is you are not willing to go beyond what you're comfortable and with what you're familiar. So if that's true for us in our everyday life, and if that's true maybe in our area of work, or if that's true in our, you know, our, our community kind of life, how sad if all of a sudden this is true in our spiritual life. That we're like, God, I have my relationship with you. I know what my life is like with you, and, and that's enough. God, I'm comfortable with this. I'm comfortable doing my daily bread devotional. I'm comfortable with doing my three prayers. I'm comfortable going with, you know, to church on Sunday morning. That's good enough for me, God. That's what I'm comfortable with. Now, none of those things are bad. But how sad that possibly God has so much more for you as far as a relationship with Him, but because we're not willing to go beyond what we're comfortable, we're not willing to go beyond what we're familiar with, it is possible that the next is passing us right by. I want to look today at this man named Saul. And later on he's known as Paul, and so I'm going to mix this up constantly. I did in the first service, and I will again now. And so Saul starts off as the non-believer in Jesus, and Paul ends off as the believer in Jesus. But I want to talk to us today about this man Saul, because I don't know if there's any figure in Scripture that maybe has as dramatic of an encounter with Jesus as Saul does, and that the change is as obvious as it is with Saul. After Saul meets Jesus on a road to Damascus, nothing is ever the same for him. And so we're going to unpack that, but first thing, I want you to just to know some things about Saul because these are important things because if we don't know these things about Saul, we might just think, well, big deal. Here's a guy who is persecuting the church and then he becomes a Christian and, and big deal. There, the, the word Saul and, and what he stood for and who he was is dramatic. This wasn't just some character in the Bible. This was a person who was very, very determined to do what he knew he could do. He had his life in control. He had the resume that would have been the awe of almost anyone. So let's look a little bit at what, at what Saul is like. And Saul was from Tarsus. That was his hometown. It's possible, some uh, scholars believe, that Saul's parents would have fled from Rome to Tarsus during an uprising in Rome. And so Saul was a Roman citizen, also very important because this brought status and this brought you know, incredible wealth, and it brought all kinds of, you know, um, things with it, just because he was a citizen of Rome. And if you read the book of Acts, he uses that, you know, at one point to say, hey, why have you been flogging me? Why have you been beating me? I'm a Roman citizen. And once he says, I'm a Roman citizen, those jailers are out of, they don't know what to do next. Because being a Roman citizen brought with it privilege. You were privileged to be a Roman citizen, Saul was a Jewish Hebrew from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a tent maker by trade. And so to understand this a little bit better, it's not that Saul, you know, was a poor guy, and so he says, you know what, let's make tents for a living. That's most likely not what his situation was. What they did in those days, I mentioned to you guys last year, last week, 
that the disciples, every Jewish boy wanted to be under a rabbi, under a teacher. And the disciples, they had missed the boat. They were fishing. They were, you know, collecting taxes. They were doing those kind of things. Well, Saul hadn't. Saul made the cut. Saul was a student of a rabbi. And that rabbi's name was Gamaliel. And he was one of the best teachers, one of the best in the, in the world. And, and so today we might say, man, if you're a hockey player, if you're a baseball player, every one of these players knows which coach they want to be under. And if you're a hockey player and someone's like, well, you were coached by this and this person, and if that coach is an amazing coach, you kind of get a different look at you because people are like, well, if you were coached by that guy, this means you're, you may very well be a very good player because that guy wouldn't waste his time with just anybody. And so that was the situation that Paul was under. He was under some of the best teachers. Now what they did in those days, going back to the tent making, they would take teaching and a trade and they would go hand in hand. And so they wouldn't say, well, let's just teach you scripture. Let's just teach you, you know, some Bible. And then that's all you need to do. They would take teaching scripture, teaching the Bible, and they would take that and they would make it go coexist with teaching a trade. And so it's very possible that the trade that Paul was taught was tent making. And so we don't really, I think the main reason why they did this was, you know, to teach responsibility and those kind of things. And so that's why Paul was a tent maker. Paul was also a Pharisee. He says actually about himself in Philippians, he's, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. You know, this was one of, he was very, very devoted to being a Pharisee. Now, the word Pharisee literally means separate. These guys would separate themselves from everything else. These guys were, you know, very, they kept the law. They they would not, you know, engage in all kinds of things. And Saul was one of these guys. The Pharisees believed and taught an oral portion of the law of Moses that was sort of a commentary to the law given to Moses, which is known as the Mishnah. And so these guys would teach this stuff. They would know this stuff. And so these Pharisees were extremely educated. And they knew exactly what they had to do and what they, had not, they shouldn't do in order to please God. Saul was an exceptional student of the law and of the traditions. And he says that in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13 to 14. So here you can kind of picture this man. He's a Roman citizen... He's at the top of his class. He's a Pharisee. He's had the best teacher. He has a trade. Here's a guy who has everything going for him. And I think Saul kind of sees, sees it that way too. He's in control of his life. He knows what he's doing. He knows what his future is going to be. He knows what he wants to accomplish. And he knows exactly how he's supposed to live. Saul knows what he's doing. He has his life together. He has his life under control. He is in charge of what's going on in his life. Now we first meet Saul in chapter 7 of the book of Acts. Chapter 7, verse 58. There we meet Saul for the first time. But look at the situation under which we meet him. We meet him at the end of, or right as Stephen is being stoned to death. And in chapter 7, you see the long... Stephen gives us beautiful, beautiful, you know, run through the history of, of the Bible and how Jesus came to save the people from their sin and how all the Pharisees have always, um, you know, persecuted the, the, the prophets before him. And Stephen gives this incredible speech and the Pharisees are outraged and they take him outside the city walls 
and they start stoning him to death. Now, a short little segment there that Luke introduces us to, with to Saul goes something like this. He says that the witnesses came and they laid their coats at Saul's feet. And Saul stood giving approval. And so you can kind of picture Saul in his garment. You know, he's got his Pharisee outfit on and, and he's in all his splendor. You can just kind of see him standing there. And all these people coming and, and putting their coats at his feet. And this was a sign of saying, we are under you. For anybody that would have, any Jew that would have been looking and they would have seen this played out, they would have immediately said, that's the man in charge of this situation. That's the guy who's making this happen. And so Saul was this powerful figure that when he wanted someone thrown in prison, they were thrown in prison. And he could give approval to someone being stoned. And so the very first time we meet Saul is at Stephen's, um, at his stoning. And Saul is standing there giving approval to what is happening. Paul, uh, Saul passionately persecuted the church. He was so zealous that he went all over the place to persecute the church. And he had women and men thrown into prison. This was something he was passionate about. He was going to get rid of all the people who followed the way. Anybody who followed Jesus, he was going to get rid of them. I want to pick up the story now in John, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 9, verses 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for a letter to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so here he is. He's got the authority now. The high priest has a connection to Saul. And Saul has a connection to the high priest. And he's able to go to the high priest and say, Hey, I am so zealous about taking out all these followers of Jesus. Send me to Damascus. I want to get rid of all of these people. And I'm going to clear the way. And we are going to have no more of these people who follow Jesus. And so he gets the letter. He gets the authority. And you can just picture Saul again, this mighty, powerful man now saying, I'm going to go down there and do what I want to do. Now here's something you need to know about Paul or Saul. He thinks he's in the right. Saul thinks he's doing the right thing. His idea of following God is to follow the law and follow all the traditions and follow all the commands this is what a follower does, a follower of God. And now suddenly here's this teaching of Jesus. And what are we going to do with that? And so he is determined to get rid of that. Verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And in our series during the month of December, we talked about God being light. And so in a sense... God, through light, comes now and shines around Saul. And listen to what happens. Verse 4. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? As he is approaching Damascus, Jesus himself appears to Saul. And we know that after his encounter with Jesus, Saul is never the same. Saul 
this mighty man who had authority, who had power, suddenly fell to the ground and he hears a voice, a voice calling him by name, wanting to know, why are you doing this? Verse 5. It's going to kind of where we hang our coat today, around verse 5. Listen to Saul's first response. He says these four words. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I want us to just stay here for a little bit. We're just going to stay in this verse because I believe in verse 5 here, there's so much that can teach us about what our relationship is to be like with Jesus. Saul, this powerful man, finds himself lying on the ground, finds himself eating dirt, literally, and he realizes he is not in charge. And the very first thing that Saul does, he says, who are you, Lord? In other words, Saul acknowledges immediately, so I'm not in charge. I thought I was in charge of my life. I thought I had everything together. I thought I knew what was going on. And the very first thing that Saul realizes is that he is not in control. Who are you, Lord? Saul, mighty man, with authority, humbled, lying on the ground. With all the authority that he had, with all the prestige that he had, with all the education, with all the history and the experience and the connections, here he is lying on the ground, wanting to know who was in control. Listen to the answer. The rest of verse 5. I am Jesus. So Saul saying, who are you, Lord? Who's in control? Who has power over this situation? And the answer right there. I am Jesus. The one you are persecuting. What a beautiful, beautiful promise for you all today and for me. Is your life out of control? Who are you, Lord? Who is in control? Jesus says, I am in control. I am Jesus. We've got to move on, but I want us to just, we're going to come back to that. Because I think that is such an incredible verse for Saul and for us. But moving on quickly because time is ticking Saul, in this process, and when the light flashes and when he falls to the ground, we find out that Saul, during this time, he loses his physical sight. He can no longer see. And so here now, all of a sudden, he's being led blind. He's being led completely helpless into Damascus. Quite the contrast from the entry that he probably had pictured. He most likely had this image in his mind of how he was going to enter Damascus. He was going to enter as this mighty, powerful person who had authority to do whatever he wanted. And now instead he is being led in as a blind, humbled man. For three days and three nights he eats nothing. He's praying, sitting there in complete darkness. And God sends this man named Ananias to baptize and to pray for Saul. And Ananias, you can understand, he's a little bit concerned, and rightly so. See, Ananias knows who Saul is, and 
And he, and he says, hey, God, come on. Like, don't you know who this guy is? Like, this guy has come here with authority to arrest us. And Ananias may very well be thinking, my name is probably on his hit list. I'm probably one of the guys he's come here to arrest. And now you are telling me, God, to go and to pray for him? But Ananias does as he's told. And, and, but God says to Ananias, and it's a beautiful reply in verse 15 and 16. Here's what God says to him. He says to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. God saying to Ananias, Saul's next. Saul's next. He doesn't see it yet. He doesn't know all these things yet. He, hasn't, he thought he knew what his life was going to be like. He thought he had lined all his ducks upright. He thought he had all the right education. He thought he had all the right connections and experience. He thought he had the right identity and all that. But I've chosen Saul because he is next in my plan. Listen to verse 16. And this may spook us a little bit. And this is not usually the verse that we use when we talk about leading someone to Christ. Listen to what God says to Ananias. He says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I wonder how you guys would feel if one day Aaron, let's just pick on Aaron, would come up to you and say, oh, you know what? When I heard that you had become a Christian, here's something that God said to me. God said to me, I'm going to show that person how much they're going to suffer for my name. Suffering in, in a relationship with Jesus Christ are not normally something that we want to hold together. We want to hold Jesus and say, now I'm a follower of Jesus and everything is going to be blissful and beautiful and peaceful and good. But sometimes there's suffering. Sometimes there's struggle. Sometimes there's pain. And God's saying to Ananias, don't worry. Paul's going to experience what it means to suffer for my name. So Ananias prays for Saul and he immediately receives his sight back. And the other thing that's amazing is Saul immediately begins to preach. Now we know that Saul was most likely the key figure in the persecution in the church in Jerusalem because as soon as Saul is converted, the persecution seems to stop. Saul is in Damascus and he starts preaching there and suddenly people are trying to kill him now. And so they lower him out of the wall in a basket and he escapes to Jerusalem. And the, and the people in Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem, are worried and nervous about inviting him back into their circles. And, and so this guy Barnabas comes along and he says, hey, I know this guy, I'm going to vouch for this guy, invite him into our circles. And they do. And then in verse 31 of chapter 9 it says this, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in number. I want us to catch this, and maybe I'm over-dramatizing this a little bit and stretching it a little bit, but I think it's important for us to catch this. Here is a guy who, as soon as he changed his life, all the persecution, it seems, in that region stopped. So Saul was a powerful figure. He was influential in an incredible way that when his life was changed, a lot of other people's lives were immediately changed. And all of this started with these four simple words. Who are you, Lord? I wonder what's next for us if we put ourselves under the authority of Jesus. I wonder what's next for you if you would put yourself fully under the authority of Jesus.
The first thing that we must real, realize if you're going to capture your next is what you are not. So last week we used this little, you know, you must strive for the next. Unless we strive for the next, we will get stuck in the now and then we will be then, the then. Well, this year my little tagline, or this week my little tagline is this. To discover your next, you must first encounter your Lord. To discover your next, you must first encounter your Lord. Because unless we truly encounter Jesus, who knows what our real next is. It may just be us chasing after what we want to be. It may just us be doing what we think is, uh, is best. And so if, in order for us to truly discover our next, we must first encounter our Lord. Paul had no idea that his life was going to be completely changed. All he knew is that from that moment on, he was no longer in control. He wasn't as powerful as he had thought he was. Paul realized that he wasn't the one in charge. Now most of us here would never say something like, I'm in charge of my life. Especially not as Christians. We as Christians would, would not dare say, well, I'm in charge and I'll decide what I do. Because we know that's not the right way to speak. We know that we have to say, well, Jesus is in charge of my life because I gave my life to him. But isn't it true that very often we as Christians, although we may never say those kind of things, although we may never say I'm in charge of my life, we act and we live as if we are in charge of our lives. Isn't this why some of us feel that we have a right to not get involved in the church? Or we feel we have a right whether or not we're going to help a person who is in need. Or we feel we have a right to decide whether we're going to love our neighbor or not. We feel we have a right to decide whether or not we tithe. After all, it's my money. I'm in charge. It's my life. I'll do what I want with my life. It's my time. I'll spend my time how I want. Now, we'll never say these things. But I think if we truly search our hearts I think we as believers, we sometimes live this way though. And I'm challenging us to come fully under the authority of Jesus. Who are you, Lord? To discover your next, you must first encounter your Lord. Now, I'm not much of a grammar student, and so you guys are in for a doozy, but we're going to have a little grammar lesson. Because there are two ways to use this word, your. The first way is this way. Y-O-U-R. This way of saying it, we usually, well, we refer to something belonging to you. So I would say that's your hat. That's your jacket. That's your career. That's your wife. That's your husband. That's your life. That's your future. This is something that belongs to you. This is your whatever. And so this belongs to you. So your next speaks then of what will you belong to? What will be your next? What are the things that are going to belong to you next? What are the things that you are going to own next? What are the things that are in your life right now that if I'm to say to your next, what are the things that you should be grabbing for and holding on to next that belong to you or that you are going to belong to Saul spent so much, uh, sorry, Saul went from being a person 
seeking power and authority to persecute the church, to his next was serving Jesus. And so Saul went from all this, and, and his next, or your next Saul, was no longer being a slave to sin, and no longer serving just the law, and no longer serving just your traditions. Your next Saul is Jesus. And Saul grabbed hold with all he had. He started off living in opposition to Jesus, and he ended up serving him. I wonder for some of you today if your next needs to be Jesus. Right now you're living for yourself. Right now you are in charge of what happens. Your next, the next thing that you belong to is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, maybe the next thing that you, your next is what you belong to, what you are known for. Maybe it's a ministry. Maybe it's a career change. Maybe it's something. But all of this happens as a result of coming completely under the authority of Jesus. The other your is this one. This is a contraction of you are. Okay, so your, you are. You might say, you're not going up there, are you? Or you're a pastor. And so both of these, you are a pastor, you are a farmer, you are, you know, whatever you are. This, your, speaks of identity. So the first one spoke of belonging, this one speaks of identity. So your next is to be a follower of Jesus. Or the other way that we could use this word is, you are next. There's no one else there. Parents, you are what your kids need to teaching them about Jesus Christ. You are what your children need. To all of us in this church, you are what this community needs. You are the next ones who are supposed to take the message of Jesus Christ to the world around us. We as believers have to stop looking around thinking someone else will do it. No, you are next. You're next. All of us must, again, come under the authority of Jesus Christ and say, I am the next person who has to go and spread the message of Jesus. I cannot wait for someone else. There is no one behind you. It's you that must do it in myself. So I want to challenge us today, going back to verse 5. Do you and I need today to say, Lord, who are you? Maybe we've gotten so wrapped up in what we're doing. And we've gotten so preoccupied in, in our plans for this year. And I don't want to name any because, you know, you never know if you're hitting the right one. But for us as a church, I know we've got a budget meeting coming up. And we've got plans for this church. And it's good and we should. But let's make sure that we submit ourselves fully under the authority of Jesus Christ and saying, who are you, Lord? And Jesus will answer and say, I am Jesus. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one who will lead you. To discover your next, you must first encounter your Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you so much for this morning. And God, even though I'm not feeling nearly what I feel like I should be and 
as far as presenting this material this morning. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would have spoken in a much more powerful way than I ever could have. Father, we need to all come under the authority of your Son, Jesus. And so Lord, as we go from here, I pray that one of the things that we will have all done is just allowed today for us to ask you the question, who are you, Lord? Who's in charge? Who is it that is leading me? Who is it that's guiding me? Father, I thank you that you still speak into our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to wrap up with a song. These guys are amazing. All our worship leaders in this church are amazing. I sent these guys a song this week, and I have no idea if that's why you're doing it, but I'm like, hey, this is a great closing song. And I want you just to listen to the words of this song, and you can stand and sing, and I know we're a little over time. But the song is simple. It's just, here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. And then it speaks, the verse speaks of all these different truths about Jesus. And I wonder for some of you today, this needs to just be your time of saying, God, as we start 2013, here's my heart. You first, Jesus. You're the one who's going to lead me. You're the one who's going to be in charge. Let's stand, and if you don't know the song, you will know it very quickly because it's an easy song. Let's stand and let's sing.